we're one month into the session, and we're at kind of an interesting point that seems to happen every year. It's busy, but not super busy yet. So there are still days where there's some downtime and there's not as much going on. Yeah, you know, there's some days where I walk into the Senate or the House chamber at 10 a.m. expecting to maybe see somebody, see some legislating, and they've already broken up for the day. But, you know, they are getting moving on some of the biggest issues. We know what the big topics are going to be for at least the next month or so. And we'll talk about some of the significant moments that have already happened this session. And what they'll mean for all the policies that lawmakers are trying to pass this year. This is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and policy, and for this season, the 2024 legislative session. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny, back in the proverbial saddle after a few months in babyland. I'm actually still in babyland, but now I'm working again. I was on parental leave, and Benta, I was still watching from afar because I'm an inveterate <laughs> news follower. You couldn't quit. I truly could not. And I was listening to the episode about the beginning of session, and what it sounded like was you were really prepared for this legislative session to start off dramatically. The war between Israel and Hamas has really opened up some painful divisions between lawmakers, especially Democrats. And when the session started, I really wasn't sure how much that might poison or make it a lot more difficult to get work done and influence things at the Capitol in a negative way, we did see it flare up in a special session right before the holidays. And the issue of the war in Gaza has come up a fair amount. I know that on opening day, there were some pro-Palestinian protesters up in the gallery. They did disrupt things briefly during one of the speeches, but it only lasted maybe a couple minutes and they were escorted out of the chamber. And pro-Palestinian protesters haven't been back since then. So overall, it doesn't seem like this issue has had much impact on work at the state capitol like I, and I think a lot of other people thought it might. But on the other hand, it does manifest at times. Just this week, there was a delegation of people who'd actually come from Israel, whose loved ones had been kidnapped or killed by Hamas in the October 7th attacks. They'd come to Colorado to visit with lawmakers that was organized by Democratic Senator Daphna Michelson-Janay and Republican Representative Ron Weinberg. I urge that you speak to these people today and you hear their stories. Look them and see the whites of their eyes. Because what occurred many months ago can happen to any single country in this world. It can happen to any single person, including you, including myself. These are two of the Colorado lawmakers with, I think, the closest ties to Israel. Both have family living in Israel, and Michelson Janay was born there. And when I first heard about this event, these family members, I assumed the visitors would be Coloradans or have ties to people living in Colorado, but that wasn't the case. No. So the people visiting the legislature was a delegation that's actually traveling to a number of different cities, meeting with different American officials. They're all direct family members of people who were affected by the attacks, kidnapped and again, in some cases later killed flown here from Israel by essentially the Israeli government. And it was supposed to be, for them, a chance to keep up the awareness of what had happened and raise pressure for freeing the hostages that remain in Gaza. It's important to talk to anyone, anyone and everyone that can help, that can can do something to push the, 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 the public opinion towards the 
the immediate release of the hostages. This is the only thing that concerns us, and for this we will go to extreme length. Andy, how did this event unfold? Predictably, it was pretty solemn. Lawmakers talked briefly about raising awareness about the hostages. Democrats and Republicans then both greeted the families, lined up to shake hands, have hugs. But we also have this underlying tension about what did not happen. These families were supposed to visit both the House and the Senate. They didn't end up going to the House. That's right. They only went to the Senate. The original plan was for them to visit the House as well. But House Speaker Julie McCloskey, a Democrat, ended up not making time for it, not exactly inviting them into the chamber. She was essentially worried that it would turn vitriolic. She said it was not going to be in the best interest of the House and that essentially lawmakers might not behave themselves and rise to the occasion. She was worried, I think, that this was going to turn from like a moment of silence into a heated debate over the war itself that has resulted from the Hamas attacks. You know, in Israel's military response, tens of thousands of civilians in Gaza have been killed. And that's driven a really intense debate over Israel, Gaza and the war itself. This has been such a point of contention and division for Democrats in particular. We've seen that nationally and in Colorado. In the House, we had a member join a pro-Palestinian protest on the day of the Hamas massacre. And then another lawmaker joined pro-Palestinian protesters in the House gallery during that special session right before the holidays. And we have a House Democrat who is the state's first Palestinian-American lawmaker. And then on the other side of the aisle, I think there could have been a concern that Republicans might have said things that would cross the line. So that's a lot to worry about, I guess, for McCluskey. Also, we don't know what would have happened. We don't know that any Republican or Democrat or protester would have said anything that would have disrupted this moment of mourning. But obviously, Speaker McCluskey was not willing to take the risk. I think that says a lot about this conflict. It would normally be like pretty straightforward, Benta, to honor family members of disaster or tragedy like this. But in this war in Israel and Gaza, there's so much pain on both sides. More than a thousand Israeli civilians dead. Tens of thousands of Palestinians killed in the response, and there's just not seeming to be agreement about how to grieve and honor those people. One thing that's shaped how this has played out in the House so far is that Democratic Representative Elizabeth Epps, who's been one of the most vocal lawmakers in criticizing Israel's treatment of Palestinians, has been working remotely since the start of session. Right. And Benton, you know, when a lawmaker is remote, they can still vote and participate, but they can't actually address the whole chamber. They can't address their colleagues on the chamber floor. So there's just way less opportunity for them to drive debate or discussion. And so it's not been as central. That's exactly right. But having said all that, this issue isn't going away. And Epps has introduced the only bill so far this session related to the conflict. Yeah. Representative Epps' bill goes to the Boycott, Divest and Sanction movement which is this effort to put economic sanctions or boycotts rather on Israel to minimize purchasing of products because of Israel's treatment of Palestinian civilians. The state currently has this law that says the public pension fund, para, bear with me for a second here, (laughs) cannot invest in companies that are involved in that boycott of Israel. Epps' bill would get rid of that prohibition and open the door for the state to, yes, support companies that are part of boycott, divest, and sanction. That bill was assigned to the House Finance Committee, so I imagine when it does come up for its first committee hearing, that could be a pretty long discussion. 
Benta, let's turn to a different question that's kind of been underlying this session. We began the session wondering about Democrats. They have this near supermajority, and with great power comes a lot of infighting. We wondered if we would see more splintering and sparring and fighting between progressives and moderates about what to do with all that power, right? We thought Julie McCluskey, the speaker, might see some real challenges to her leadership, pressure from the left flank of the party, the progressive lawmakers in particular. Yep. But when you always think something's going to happen, something (laughs) different happens, right? Right. The whole question of her leadership was almost immediately overshadowed by what happened with minority leader Mike Lynch. He's a Republican, and it's actually now former minority leader Mike Lynch. This was sort of a wild moment. It started exactly a week into session when the Denver Post revealed that Lynch is currently on probation from a DUI charge. Getting a DUI, not good under any circumstances. Never a good thing for a lawmaker. Ruined a lot of careers. But this stood out for several reasons. The first is that Lynch didn't tell his caucus about the DUI when it happened. This was back in the fall of 2022. He was just a regular grade lawmaker when it happened. But just a month later, the House Minority Leader at the time, his name was Hugh McKean, died suddenly. And Republican representatives then chose Mike Lynch to lead them. But when they selected him, members did not know that he was newly in this legal trouble with the DUI. And for a lot of his colleagues, that is just a huge breach of trust. Right. Why didn't you tell us? And then on top of that, some of the details from this stop start to surface. Mm -hmm. He was initially pulled over for speeding. And as these details emerge, it really casts Lynch in a bad light. For instance, early in the traffic stop, he asked the trooper to call the state patrol's lobbyist at the state capitol. Which seemed like he was maybe trying to get some help from a buddy. But then he went back on that. He goes, I didn't say that. Don't call him. And then he also told the officer if he could keep this whole situation out of the media. Plus, Lynch was carrying a firearm. He has a concealed carry permit. And I heard from some Republicans that that in particular upset them. Because you can see in the the legal documents that the officer asked Lynch not to move. And then Lynch was reaching for the firearm. Yeah. In that conversation with the trooper, didn't seem aware that that was problematic to do something like that. Right. It's not like he was going to do something with the gun, but he was very casual about being like, hey, I'm just going to take out this gun now. And the officer's like, whoa, dude. And when you have Republicans arguing for Second Amendment rights and saying we are responsible gun owners, that really undercuts their message. Right. The trooper clearly didn't think that Lynch was being responsible with the gun. On top of that, in Colorado, it's illegal to carry a gun when you're drinking. So not just ill-advised, but against the law to have that gun on him. And he's since acknowledged that it was really not good. And under his sentence, Lynch can't actually carry a firearm for a few more months. As a result of that DUI and the gun charge, uh, the end result is that within a week of all this coming to light, Lynch stepped down from his leadership role in the Republican House Minority Caucus. I am stepping down because it's the right thing to do because I've become a distraction for my caucus, and that is getting in the way of the hard work that we have to do in this building. By the way, he still is a representative, and he's also still running for Congress in the 4th against Lauren Boebert and a host of other Republicans. Meanwhile, back in the House, Republicans had to elect their third minority leader in four years. They chose Representative Rose Puglisi. She represents Colorado Springs. She's in her freshman term at the Capitol, but obviously pretty quickly climbed the ranks of the Republican caucus or what remains of it. Ouch. 
It is getting smaller by the year in some ways. She's been a lawmaker for just one year again. Yeah. Benta, in your experience, is it surprising to have that first term lawmaker now leading the caucus? Yes. Exceptionally rare. I can't think of any other time I've seen that happen before. But then again, there's 19 House members, the smallest numbers we've ever seen in state history. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a lot of options. Interestingly, the assistant minority leader is also in his first term at the state house. New blood. Right. And Puglisi beat out Representative Matt Soper from Delta for the position. He's one of the more moderate Republicans. He works a lot with Democrats. She also beat out Representative Ken DeGraff, a very conservative far-right lawmaker. Yeah. And, you know, I think Puglisi pulled together that support to become the minority leader by unifying in some ways the right and the center wings of the party because she both has some grassroots cred within conservatives. She got her start as a Mesa County commissioner. She was involved in this campaign that was opposed to teaching climate change in schools, so a real cultural conservative in some senses. But in the legislature, she's been pretty moderate in her legislation. She managed to pass like 10 bills last year, all of them pretty much bipartisan. So she has, in the legislature, a pretty moderate record, so able to appeal to both sides of the caucus. And that's pretty much exactly why Representative Ron Weinberg, a supporter, said that she won. There's an obvious two bands of caucus, and I think she will with the help of a few of us, be able to navigate those bands and finally bring something more of a Republican caucus. People have faith that she will do the right thing when it comes to the decisions that need to be made. Just like her predecessor, Puglisi, has to deal with two very different versions for the Republican Party and for what it means for the GOP to be in the minority. Yeah, you know, some House Republicans want to work with Democrats and pass bipartisan bills, even if they're not super conservative priority bills. Others, like Representative Brandy Bradley, say that Republican leaders' role is not to pass necessarily bipartisan legislation, but more so to stand up for conservative values above everything else. They have to lead and they don't they can't bend the rules to um, be friends with the Democrats. We have to stay strong in our principles. And if we start caving on those, then that's not leading by example to me. Democrats have taken steps to head off that conservative faction of the party, though. Mm -hmm. They changed House rules. Just recently, right? Yes, very recently, to make it tougher to slow things down, what was called bill readings. Oh, yeah. So we've talked about this previously, but it's one of the only ways and probably the best tool for Republicans to really exert leverage and win some concessions from Democrats because these bill readings take time, and especially as session is nearing the end, bills can die on the calendar. Yeah, if you walk in the legislature toward the end of session, you'll often hear this like robotic voice reading off the full text of a bill because a Republican requested it in order to kill time. But now there's this change that you just mentioned that if a lawmaker asks for one of those many hour long bill readings, they then have to more or less stick around the chamber and listen to the bill being read. Exactly. Can't go out for dinner, drinks, or whatever (laughs) they'd want to do. You basically have to be in the chamber the whole time. You can take a bathroom break. But other than that, you need the Democrat presiding over the chamber to give you permission to leave for a lengthy period. Otherwise, the bill reading stops. You wanted the bill to be read? All right, we're going to read it to you. Exactly. Be careful what you wish for. That's right. The courts have said that these bill readings have to happen at an intelligible speed. So with this rule change, Democratic leaders are basically saying, be prepared to be in the chamber for as long as it takes. Let's see if that has an effect. I kind of doubt that it will, maybe in some situations, but who knows. (laughs) 
just to get to one final piece of the political dynamics starting off this session, we have to talk about transparency and the new transparency rules lawmakers are supposed to be working under. This started with a lawsuit that was filed by two House Democrats, Representative Epps, who we mentioned, and Representative Bob Marshall. They both finished up their first session last year and said they were really disturbed by what they had learned about how things actually get done in the Capitol. In this lawsuit, they accused Democratic lawmakers of making substantive decisions on policy in caucus meetings without any real public notice of what they were doing, and that Democratic committee members would meet before hearings to plan out their approach. And lawmakers in both parties were using auto-deleting texting apps. I don't think every lawmaker uses these, but some of them do. So you don't have to turn over messages. There's no records retention. Yes. The overall impact of all those techniques when you add them up was that Democrats were able to keep some of their intra-party debates private, settle out differences out of the public eye, and then look more unified and agreeable in public when they were actually doing the floor debate. I talked to Democratic Representative Brianna Titone about the impact of all of this. Democrats have agreed to change how they do business, be more transparent. But Titone says, on the other hand, There was some value, especially for lawmakers serving on the same committee, Democrats, getting together to talk about bills just a little bit in advance. Well, I mean, you know, when it comes to like committee meetings, it wasn't necessarily about what the outcome of the bill was going to be. It was more about, you know, where people were on the bill. I mean, it's like counting your votes. So she's saying that those conversations before the meeting, the meeting before the meeting were just helpful to getting things done. But I'll say that's also what people like Epps and Marshall said they were concerned about, that a lot of the substance of the conversation was happening behind closed doors. I think people would counter if everything has to be in front of a microphone, you may not get the truest, honest conversation that way and reach a middle ground and get through some of those thorny issues. So there's just definitely a push and pull on this issue. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of pushing and pulling on this still going on right now. The legislature is trying to figure out how to operate under these new rules where they can't be quite as private in some of their discussions as they could be before. Democratic leaders signed a consent decree to resolve the lawsuit. They did say they wouldn't do a lot of these things. But a lot of Democratic House members that I've talked to say they're really confused about what they're still allowed to do and what's off limits. Here's Democratic Representative Judy Amabile. I think a lot of us feel like I don't know exactly what the rules are. You know, one of the things we're not supposed to do is meet one-on-one with one person after another. So if you're on a committee, you can't go to Bob and then go to Mary and then go to Betty. That's breaking the rules. You know, if you talk to everybody. Like right after each other or just the same day or what? I don't know. Clearly, this kind of informal system of rules have built up over (laughs) who knows how many years. And now there is a much more formal and explicit set of rules about what you can do and not. They're still figuring out how to operate, how to shift their whole culture into being in compliance with stricter rules. And it is a big change. Nobody wants to break the law. But at the same time, we all want to do the best we can for our constituents. And so it's useful for us to be able to talk to each other. You know, we're still talking one-on-one, but we're not. um, There are more surprises happening now in terms of how people are voting and things like that. And maybe that's fine. And maybe we'll adjust and we'll start to figure out a way to have those conversations on the mic in the committees.
I would quickly note that I talked to some senators and the consent decree doesn't apply to the Senate. Oh. I don't think there's as many changes in terms of how people are communicating in the Senate. Yeah. And one of the lobbyists I talked to said that they don't think the House Republicans are changing things quite as much. Keep in mind, if a couple House Republicans who serve on the same committee met, that's not a quorum of that committee. Yeah, because they don't have the majority of any of these committees. Well, kind of makes me want to go back and read up on how we ended up with all these rules to begin with and what did Colorado's founders intend with this system? So don't get me started on a research project because you never know what you're going to get back. <laughs> and I think one thing we have to note is that we've talked about these huge Democratic majorities. Yeah, I've covered a split legislature when Republicans held the Senate or a much more narrow majority. Mm -hmm. And I think things come out into the open much more easily when you have that type of structure. Yeah, when you have a much more competitive environment, both parties have a lot more opportunity to slow down the other one and force debate. When it is a one-party system, one-party rule, they are able to move things much more quickly. And this kind of question of what happens in public, what happens in private, I think becomes, to your point, more important when there's only one party running the show. We are expecting to see a bill later this session to provide some clarity, make some changes to open records. I know we'll be covering that. I think one thing from the, the media perspective, we don't want to see any changes that make things a lot less transparent. If you look at quite a few other states, lawmakers have exempted themselves from open records entirely. I love open records. <laughs> don't do that. All right. So we've talked about a lot of the political and interpersonal stuff that's happening in the legislature all through this first month of session. Now, please, can we spend a little bit of time on the actual stuff voters sent them there to do, which is, you know, policy, making laws, things of that nature? Yes. That other job they have. Oh, right. So first thing, Andy, I'm very glad you're back. I'm happy to see you, but also one of the big priorities lawmakers are talking about. <laughs> Housing, housing costs. Ah, so you're glad I'm back so that I can deal with zoning codes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. No, I thing. just really missed you. I no, really did. Thank you, Ben. I missed you too. Uh, but speaking of, yeah, let's talk about the zoning, the housing. We all remember that this was a little bit controversial last year. Just a little bit. You know, Polis's sweeping package enraged local governments, prompted months of debate, and just died on the final day of the session. Yes, it was not a pretty moment. The governor swung big on housing and struck out last year anyway. So this year, the legislature is bringing back the housing and land use topic. But I would say they're doing the diet version, diet land use, or maybe like <laughs> land use with stevia. I haven't it's, heard that. Land use light. Land use light. It's not land use zero. It's not nothing. But it's a lot of the same ideas from last year, but like way shrunk back. So how so? Can you give some specifics? Okay, so on housing and land use, the headline on last year's bill was that the state was going to force all kinds of cities and towns to let developers develop more densely, allow duplexes, quadruplexes, apartments in all kinds of single-family neighborhoods, and just build more housing. That did not go over well with a lot of suburban areas, with a lot of state lawmakers from both parties. So this year, they're coming back with a scaled-back proposal. They're focused more on, I would say, like specific types of development that they want to enable. They want to allow, say, accessory dwelling units in more places, like what you call them, granny flats, mm -hmm. 
that's like a far cry short of condos and duplexes everywhere. But it's like, all right, well, let's start with ADUs because they're maybe not as impactful, not as controversial. They want to encourage more condos and apartments, but instead of doing it across a lot of the city, they're going to only focus on upzoning near transit lines and not in every city, just on like front range cities in the Grand Junction area. So with all these changes, do you think that will win over some of the opposition or do you think some of the opposition will become neutral? Like, What will it mean for these bills actually passing this session? I don't know. By all accounts, Democrats are doing a lot more legwork, working with the opposition, workshopping these ideas in public. But they still haven't won over, say, the Colorado Municipal League. That's like the voice for cities. CML has said they are still going to oppose any kind of mandate. So even if it's just ADUs that we're talking about, they're still going to oppose forcing cities to accommodate those accessory dwelling units. They're still going to oppose forcing cities to allow denser development near transit. They said that's going to be a no for them. And they only want incentives and encouragement. And please don't make us do anything we don't want to do. Cities have a lot of leverage at the Capitol, Mm -hmm. and lawmakers do pay a lot of attention to what local officials are telling them. So if we don't have cities on board with this, ultimately, is it going to be impossible to pass? You know, it's hard to say. Is the city's position going to be, heck no, absolutely no, or is it going to be like, "Uh, we don't like it, but whatever. And the lawmakers who want to make these changes, they feel like they're moving in the right direction to get more consensus this year. I think people expected us to do more, and I certainly expected us to do more. And I think we've recognized um, those moments as a challenge to really rise to at the occasion. This is Democratic Representative Andy Bazenecker, who's part of the whole housing push. And so I'm hopeful that this year we can really really deliver in some key areas. This is going to be a multi-year thing, and I think it will probably outlive my time in the legislature that we will need affordable housing in our state. Last session, we saw a definite split between Democrats about whether the solution on housing is to empower developers to build more of it for people to buy or rent. That's the philosophy of the governor. Or other Democrats want to change the rules to do more to protect people who rent. Yeah, I would call that YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard, pro-development versus renters' rights. Not necessarily contrasting, but you saw this split where progressive Democrats in particular, a lot of them were really focused on the renters' rights side whereas the governor and others were more focused on getting that housing built in the first place. Some of those more progressive renters' rights bills, though, failed as well. Yeah, yeah. The same thing happened to their bills as well. And I think it was due to the disconnect between the two different groups of Democrats. So some of those progressive bills are coming back this session to do stuff like making it harder to evict people, making it easier for cities to buy up buildings for affordable housing, They're not going as far as last year. I don't think we're going to see a local rent control bill again like we did last year. And the progressives are hoping that scaling it back will be enough to get especially Governor Polis on board. We hear from lawmakers in both parties that housing affordability and cost of living, top, top priority for this session. It sounds like what we're seeing from Democrats is that compared to last session where they wanted to do bigger sweeping packages that would have these larger impacts, Mm -hmm. since those efforts weren't successful this year, just scale back, still heading on that same path, but not as large in scope. Right. The idea is let's get something done. But the question is, how much will that something actually do? That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. 
I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. This episode was produced by Shane Rumsey and edited by Megan Verlee. We'll be back in your podcast feed in two weeks. So if you're not already a subscriber, sign up, make sure you don't miss it. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends or write us an email, purplish at CPR.org. This is Purplish from CPR News.